quarantine. of What the Quarantine does contain themes and topics which may be offensive, provocative, or controversial to some listeners. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello to you all and welcome. This is episode 7 of What the Quarantine and you're joined here again with the man himself, who is unafraid to hold his microphone and to unleash it to anyone who wants to spill or to divulge or to rev- to unveil or even reveal everything that's happening to them during this global crisis that we find ourselves in. And if you can't identify this voice that you are now hearing, it is Jared McLaughlin. <laughs> so yes, it's been eight. It's now been eight months since COVID nineteen was declared to be a international disaster, and pretty much millions upon millions of people, all through different continents, including ours, have been confirmed as having the virus or they have recovered, or they tragically were dealt with the unfortunate consequence of being taken or having their life snatched away from them. It has not been easy for any of us. And we had to make a lot of changes and a lot of adjustments had to be brought in So we reduce the likelihood of us spreading COVID-19 to anyone that we know or we could, probably not um, deliberately, but unintentionally, or you probably can still go out, but just make sure you adhere to the rules and the guidelines that have been set out by the relevant state, territory and federal government departments and agencies. Maintain social and physical distancing, wash your hands, make sure to sanitise them, yeah, and just find other imaginative or creative alternatives to wanting to socialise with those that you love and you adore, because you're not going to be able to do that um, that much, well, not until we relocate an antidote or cure that can help to mitigate the risks of anyone accidentally or unintentionally contracting the virus. Now, to give a a status update, as of Sunday the 30th of August 2020, the current tally of Australians who have caught or have been confirmed as testing positive 
to COVID-19 is at 25,670, 21,111 have recovered, while 611 have been recorded as being fatalities or they have been confirmed as being deceased or they have succumbed to elements of the virus. In South Australia, 463 people were recorded as having COVID-19. Four of them so far were reported to be fatalities stemming from the Ruby Princess catastrophe back in April. And the remainder, as we can count, it is 459, either fully recovered or just about to complete the final stage of having to be in 14-day quarantine. I don't know the exact details, but it's all going well here in this part of the country. Can't say the same about Victoria, which has over 19,000 cases. And I think there's about six, about over 500 fatalities. But the numbers are going down. So we just need to keep an eye out and to see if fortunes are going to turn. Okay, let's get into the interview. For this instalment, I got a chance to chat with William Broom, who is a well-known, highly regarded and self-taught LGBTQIA media personality, interviewer, YouTuber and advocate, who recently, in the, in the last year, I think it was last year, he finally completed his ultimate goal and dream to becoming an adoptive citizen of the land down under. I chatted with William to hear more about how he's been handling the virus and the previous and the impending lockdowns in New South Wales, how young people in the LGBTQIA plus community are coping with having their mental health challenged by the difficulties that have been pelted by the unpredictability that this virus withholds, and to also find out how he became in love and even obsessed with Australian soap operas. This is episode 7 of What's the Quarantine, and I am joined here with William Broom, British born, adopted by our great country here in Australia. He is a well-known, highly regarded LGBTQIA plus broadcaster, interviewer, YouTuber, and a real, an all-round nice bloke. Definitely someone who has influenced (laughs) me in so many ways to the person that I am today in the LGBTQIA plus community. So how are you, William? Wow. Before I answer that, I've got to say, Jared, 
I'm absolutely flattered and honoured by your high praise and your kind words. They mean the world to me. And to be on your show, Jared, is a fantastic honour. How am I? I'm pretty well. I've been keeping busy. I've been keeping a very close eye on things. I'm adapting, really. And how have you been getting on with the pandemic, even though it's still a, a looming presence here? not only in Australia, but everywhere else in the world. How are things going for you in the second hotspot? For me, I often work from home anyway. So my life hasn't changed too much. In many ways, particularly for most of it, I actually enjoyed having a bit of space. I enjoyed the change of pace. Part of it, in my mind, always felt that it was somehow nature's way of telling us all to slow down. You know, heavy traffic, people always rushing everywhere, many international flights polluting the air. And I've enjoyed that. For me personally, where I've struggled is seeing how other people have coped. Many of them have struggled. And that's upset me, particularly when it's friends, particularly when it's people close to me. What I've been impressed by is how people have adapted, how people have coped, and how people have come up with coping strategies. Not everybody has, I, I accept that, but I have been impressed by most people, I've got to say. And what have been your coping mechanisms? How have you gone about having to settle yourself, having to be confined to your um, surroundings, like as you probably are now, you're in your apartment in downtown Sydney? Well, for me, the important thing is to get fresh air. And I've been running regularly. I love running. I have a beautiful park, Moore Park and Centennial Park, just next door. Or I go for very long walks, and that clears my mind. Often there aren't that many people around. One thing I've got to say is when the gym's closed, if I went for a run, so many runners, so many people. Now the gyms have reopened, I've got my park back which is great. It's my own private space. And I go there to think, and my best thoughts come to me. And I'm calm. I don't go on Facebook. I don't go on Twitter or Instagram when I'm out and about. I'm in my own world. And that's how I cope. The other strategy I have is my Facebook timeline, well, rather newsfeed, is full of people with different views of COVID. I ignore a lot of it. I get most of my information from doctors and scientists, as well as government organizations. I try not to buy into people's panicking. You've got people who have hysteria, understandably, who are very nervous and scared. I mean, you've got other people who seem to be in some sort of denial, but it actually doesn't exist. And I think all these confusing messages do not help. So I try and close myself off from it and only get my news and information from a few choice sources. Yeah, we have, we have quite a lot of deniers and sceptics who think that COVID-19 is some kind of allegory to rescind our individual freedoms and civil liberties, where we know that that's not actually what is happening. They are trying to reduce the risk of us or any other citizen from contracting the virus. Do you feel that a lot of people are really that self-absorbed and selfish about their own health and the, and the health of, of those around them, including their relatives or friends who might have immune-compromised or chronic conditions that could put them at more risk of getting COVID-19. 
Well, I'm not a doctor or a medic, but what I can say as an observer and somebody who is out there and is trying to deal with this is that, yes, some people I do think can appear selfish, but I also think we need to look at perhaps the reasons behind it. I think a lot of people like being in control of their lives and a lot of people feel they've lost that control. They feel angry, their jobs have been affected, they feel restricted, they feel they can't go out to the bars and pubs and hug. Australians love to hug, Australians love to dance, Australians love to have fun. And particularly in a culture like Australia, it's something we're not used to. So I get where a lot of people are coming from. I absolutely understand, and I'm not going to condemn everybody. I think it's easy to condemn, and I get that. But I try to understand why people feel the way they do. And I also understand people who are terrified, people who are fearful. I've also got people on my Facebook who won't go out at all, who any time to the bar and socially distances, they say, you shouldn't be out in a bar. I get that too. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to understand, but also do my best and without sounding condescending, be kind too. Yeah, it's all about being considerate and being kind and, and, and reassuring to your friends and family because we will get through this. We will see the other side of this pandemic, but we're going to do our bit and be sure that we are conscious of making sure that we reduce the likelihood of other people getting the virus and developing outbreaks and clusters and even getting the higher fatality rate we can we need to prevent that from happening we have to and as i say it's about having coping strategies i do feel having spoken to people that there will come a point where we can't stay locked down or semi-locked down forever and we will have to open up because of the economy etc and also uh, people's mental health i know a lot of people are suffering their mind with this and are really struggling. Yes, people are getting sick with COVID. We've had tragic, devastating deaths, but there have also been people who their mental health has been very much affected. And I think we also need to focus on them too. Yes, definitely. Because I did see somewhere that the number of people who may experience or even attempt suicide or even suicidal ideolation will increase in the next few decades. That is a very troubling statistic to swallow. It's very troubling. It's absolutely tragic and devastating. I don't know so much what's been happening here in Australia in terms of attempted suicides or suicides, but I do know of people in the UK who have tragically taken their lives because they just can't cope. Even at the beginning of the COVID crisis, people were really struggling and taking their lives because they Particularly young people in many ways, they like company, they like going out. And this is something we're not used to. People haven't been able to go to school for periods, be with their friends. I'm sure for some people not going to school is a wonderful thing. I think I would have loved not going to school. But it... <laughs> oh, yes, yes. If only this happened 20 years ago for me. <laughs> Absolutely. Me too. I could have done with a long break, I can tell you. Yeah, but I do think that if we keep on observing and keeping a, and just um, keeping a close eye on our friends and making sure that their that their mental health isn't being compromised in any way and being sure that we look out for the for the, the telltale signs of them wanting to, to wanting to attempt to take their own lives and to keep reassuring them keep 
consoling them and be able to let them know that things will get, um, things can get easier, but we just need to be sure that we're not going to neglect or forget about those people who may not have the uh, tenacity or the maturity to be able to tell anyone to, although I wouldn't say much maturity, but more like the, the assurity that they are going to be taken seriously when they do tell a counsellor or a doctor or their GP that they, cannot, they can't settle, they can't cope with having to mm. stay at home every day and not, and not be able to go back into their normal, to their regular routine that they had before the pandemic hit. I think it's so important to reach out to friends who you feel are struggling, but also if you're struggling, I encourage you, and I know it's often easier said than done, reach out, reach out to somebody and share your experience, talk with them. Yes, exactly. Reach out, share, and just console. Just ask them, are you okay? And if they want to confide it in you, they want to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation, then it's okay to let yourself be made available to initiate that conversation. So as long as you know... Crucial. Yeah, as long as you know how to handle these situations of mental health and suicidal ideolation, then I got a feeling that a lot of people are going to be grateful to having mm. someone to, to talk to or to be able to unwind or to rant at because <laughs> they will probably have a lot to unleash because mm. they've, they've been holding it in and they can't find an outlet anywhere uh, to channel all those pent-up feelings of sorrow and despair and frustration and depression. I think that's important. And apart from asking people to reach out and reaching out, there are other things we can do. Like I've seen friends of mine on Facebook write things like, we should be terrified of this. We should be panicking. It's important. No, you've got to be aware of the language you use because anybody who has anxiety that makes it worse it's yeah. awful and it terrifies people just be aware of the language you use if you're going to talk about coronavirus or COVID-19 just be very careful what language you use because it could affect people very badly yeah it's all about learning the do's and don'ts of, of talking to someone about some suicide and knowing how they can prevent or even deter someone from wanting to take their own life. And yes, it is all about learning how to use appropriate, proper language and having an attitude where you're not going to make someone feel guilt or make them feel ashamed of mm. them having to reveal their struggles with having to handle this situation because no one thought that they were going to be in a global pandemic i didn't think i was going no. to be caught up in this and i'm sure that it was the same for you how do you think exactly. um people in how do you think those in the lgbtqia plus community how do you think they have been handling this crisis in your own words it's actually, it's actually fantastic you asked me that because i was actually about to bring up that very issue I've been impressed. Of course, I've seen people suffer. I've seen some people in denial, but I've been impressed how our community in general has reached out and broadcasts such as yours, which has taken place very much as a result 
because of COVID-19. We see drag shows, for instance. We see DJs going live online. And I think it makes people feel less alone. Imagine if this happened, say, 15, 20 years ago, when we didn't have Zoom, when we didn't have Facebook, when we didn't have Instagram, when we didn't have all these easy, simple-to-do live broadcasts, as brilliant as they are. And what I also like as a byproduct of this has been that people in regional areas, suburbs, small towns, villages, are now able to enjoy shows and broadcasts that they couldn't have because they haven't had easy access to the city. Many people don't like going to bars. They've been able to watch, say, drag shows, for instance. Um, Organisations such as Acon and Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras have been doing live broadcasts. Yourself, Jared. And I think, I hope to an extent, this will continue. I hope it won't stop with COVID. It's got to continue because it's a way of reaching out and connecting with our wider community. Yeah, it's all about opening the channel for people to talk to another person because they're not going to have that that close contact in their own home even if they're in their own place of residence an apartment townhouse Mm. a a cul-de-sac they are probably not going to have someone else living with them to kind of to break down or to decipher or to converse how they are getting through this crisis and i think it is good to have these outlets and platforms because none of this existed 20 years ago i can remember that back in the year 2000 when we survived the y2k hysteria we didn't have the the telecommunication apparatuses that we do now we didn't have broadband internet we didn't have wi-fi we didn't have our own personal devices we didn't even have our own access to a a laptop or even a, a desktop computer even for myself back in the year 2000 being 14 and 15 years of age my family only owned one desktop computer between the five of us wow how was it for you back then? Because you were much older than I was. You were oh, in your, you. you were in your twenties. <laughs> you were in your I know, I'm old. <laughs> so you were an adult around this time. How do you think you would have had to initiate the strategies if we did if the world was in the grips or they were having to having to control a a, glo- a global pandemic? How do you think? we as a society, as a species, would have handled or controlled this issue back then? I thought about this quite a bit. It would have obviously been different. We didn't have the technology to avail ourselves of, but I think we would have adapted. We would have found ways of adapting. How would I have adapted? Maybe I would have closed off. Maybe I would have gone out there and spoken to people on the phone. I don't know. But I was a bit of a latecomer to technology. I have to admit, I didn't have... I had a laptop from 1996, but it wasn't internet connected. Mm-hmm. I, I used to have part-time jobs on radio stations and I'd use their internet, but I never had my own email account until 1999. So it coincided more or less with the millennium. But I think we would have found our own ways of adapting as people found ways of adapting with viruses in the past. Humans are amazing creatures. We find ways of coping. And I think whatever would happen, we would somehow cope. Yeah, I think we would. Yeah. 
because we do have a way to to actually learn and to grow and to elevate our ways of having to, to take a hold of any emergency situation. And we have seen many, many examples of this. But I kind of want to go back to talking about a little bit about yourself, William. Mm. How did you begin your journey as the person that you are? I think it's a very good question. And it's something I've never really thought too much about. I first became aware of the world around me and issues, I think in the early 80s, I was watching a news report on the BBC. It was from South Africa during apartheid. And I saw some white Caucasian police officers beating up some black men. And I remember, I didn't know much about the history, but I thought, I must have been three or four. I thought, what an injustice, how disgusting. I was disgusted. I also remember in the early 80s, we had what were called the miner strikes. Margaret Thatcher was closing down a lot of mines. There was a lot of violence between the police and miners. Again, I remember being aware of what was going on, seeing it on the news. But in that instance, rather than disgust, I felt more terrified. I actually thought maybe there's going to be some kind of civil war because it was in the UK. It felt very, very close to home. And I also have some vague recollections, I think, of the Falklands War in 1982 of being on the news between Britain and Argentina. And so I think that's when I became more aware of the world around me and current affairs. In terms of my own sexuality as a gay man, it was never really an issue, as long as I remember. So even though I say I kind of came out in 1999, I really was never in the closet because I always knew I was attracted to, to guys, people of the same sex, and it never actually bothered me. I knew that it was something you didn't really talk about, but I never struggled. A lot of people struggle with their sexuality or in denial. For me, it was never a struggle. It was just part of who I am. But I do appreciate that it's not been that easy for many other people and still in many parts of the world, including parts of Australia, it's not that simple. I, I think I've just been lucky. It was, it was quite a, a turbulent, intolerant time for LGBTIQ plus people, including gay and bisexual men, as, you, as it was, and this has come to a time when I was born, I was born in 1985, you were in, no, I wouldn't say that you were in like similar to what is happening now, but you, everyone was fighting for their lives during the HIV AIDS epidemic and around this time homophobia and LGBTIQ IA plus related to discrimination and bigotry really the bar was really raised up during the the Thatcher years and that includes yes. the implementation of section 28 which prohibited schools from wanting to teach relationships of those who were same-sex attracted and you had to go through quite a lot. How was it for you being a young child during those times? I have very vague memories. I, I come from a very comfortable background. I come from a loving family. I do have vague memories of Section 28 being talked about on the news. I remember the BBC newsroom, two lesbians came and hijacked the BBC newsroom. And I think allegedly, and I think it's true, the male news presenter ended up sitting on one of the lesbians. Yes, uh, yes. I remember seeing a, a documentary about that. And also, 
there was a, you know, Benetton, the clothing company, I seem to remember they had an advert and they used to have controversial images. And one of them was with a man who had AIDS and was in a hospital bed. We're talking about, I think, the late, mid to late 80s. Very skinny, no weight on him, on his deathbed, basically. And I remember that image. I don't know how much I connected it to gay people, but I was vaguely aware of what was going on. Now, I was bullied somewhat at school, at one of my schools, and I do remember one of the terms they used was uh, transvestite. And people, even though a gay man isn't necessarily a transvestite, they can be a transvestite, I, I, the term gay, the term homosexual, transvestite, transsexual, I always associated them as one and the same. I didn't realise there are quite major differences often. I had no idea. The terms that were locked, they, they were levelled at me, these terms, to attack me. People didn't know I was gay. I wasn't telling people I was gay. I never denied it. But people would use those terms. Like there were a couple of kids in my class who were overweight. You know, they were called fat. All these horrible body shaming terms. But to get at me, people would use homophobic terms, transphobic terms. Also, I had a problem with my speech. I couldn't pronounce my R's or my S's properly. And I've had to talk, talk teach myself to speak how I do. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was bullied very badly because of that. Yeah, yeah, I can totally relate to having a problem with my speech. I had to have a, a speech pathologist teach me how to probably pronounce certain words and phrases. Mm -hmm. Learning how to use the right nouns and verbs did you have to do that <laughs> i had to do all these things but but what happened for me was i think i got to about the age of between probably about 20 actually probably 20 19 20 i had started working in radio part-time and people were commenting on my r's and my s's and i just became fed up and they were you know going watch a wabbit and things like that so i listened to broadcasts I listened to radio, I recorded myself repeating words until I got them right. Now, I've done a lot since, so what you often hear, I've had to teach myself it's affected, but occasionally, if I'm a bit stressed or I'm speaking too fast, you'll hear those old R's and old S's come out. So I'm always aware of what I'm saying and what yeah. words come out. Mm -hmm. Are there any examples of when someone did call you out, when you did mispronounce certain words or phrases, including those that had an S or R in them? All the time. All the time. And I remember in my secondary school, probably about a year in, I was called out of the classroom to speak to another teacher. I went to the other teacher. Apparently he had something to give me, but he didn't have it. I thought, this is weird. And when I got back to my classroom, after that class, my class, a couple of my classmates told me that the teacher had asked me to leave the room so she could give them a lecture not to pick on me because of the way I speak. And I have recordings of myself. As a boy, I used to record myself speaking. And you can hear how I spoke. I sounded very different then to how I sound now. Could it be that it was your accent or the way you were pronouncing certain words or phrases? That's no, I've gotten a bit um, confused 
by how a lot of you're saying them. A lot of English people have an issue, I don't know if it's the shape of your mouth or what, they have an issue with pronouncing that, see, I just went then, pronouncing your R's or S's. So for some reason, if there was a word that was with, with sir, I'd say sure, and vice versa. I, all my family spoke normally. It was just me. So I don't know if it was the way of my palate was shaped or my teeth or my mouth. But it became too much at about 19 or 20. And I really wanted to work in radio. Yeah. And the radio industry can be very ego-led. It can be very antagonistic at times. People will pick on your voice and how you sound. It's even worse with video when people pick on your appearance. And so I just taught myself. I was just fed up. I said, no, I'm not just going to sit here and complain about it. I'm going to learn and I'm going to teach myself. And I did. But as I say, I'm always conscious of what I'm saying and the way that words come out of my mouth. Now, you had a long love affair with Australia. It all began when you were 12 years old and you visited Australia House. Can you be able to elaborate on that more? This is bizarre. So, well, uh, between the ages of maybe 10 and 12, I would watch Neighbours. You know Neighbours? Of, of course oh, you know. Oh, yes. I know about Neighbours. We've done the, the Neighbours tour, of course. Yes. Yeah, we, I, 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 I did the Neighbours tour twice, but I, the second time I did it, you were there with me. You were amazing. You knew more about Neighbours than the tour guide. But, but getting back to that, so I'd watch Neighbours. Yeah. I had no interest in Australia. But one day, on a Saturday, it was a Saturday morning, I was in my parents' back garden, and suddenly I heard this disembodied voice. I don't know where it came from. It must have been in my inner mind saying, you've got to go to Australia. From that moment, my obsession and dream was to visit Australia. And I had dreams. Can I tell you, I'll tell you briefly about one of my dreams. I was standing on Sydney Harbour. I've never been to Australia. I was standing on Sydney Harbour. The Opera House was behind me. There was a ship leaving the shore with the Union Jack on. Behind me on the harbour was a band playing a waltzing Matilda. And I waving wow. <laughs> goodbye to the ship from the harbour. And then I had all these other dreams of Australia. And I loved them. And I'd wake up and I'd feel so sad because I wasn't in Australia. There, there's a lovely English seaside resort called Bournemouth on the south coast. It's beautiful in the, in the summer. It's in Dorset. But we used to go there in winter for Christmas. English seasides can be miserable, lonely places in winter. And I remember I sat under Bournemouth Pier on the sand. I had a travel brochure for Australia. And I just looked in the general, or, well, what I thought was the general direction of Australia and wishing... I was in Bondi or Balmoral or Bronte or somewhere. And then when I was 18, so I used to visit Australia House as a teenager. I'd read all the newspapers, which were at least five to seven days old. Finally, when I was 18, I went to Australia. I flew to Australia to spend time with my great aunt who lived here. And as I was landing at Sydney Kingston Smith Airport, I saw the harbour and the opera house lit up. And I knew, with tears in my eyes, I'd come home. And my dream has been to live here. I love Australia. It's far from perfect. There are many flaws, but it's also a beautiful country with so many amazingly beautiful, wonderful people, many cultures here, such a long history, particularly with our indigenous peoples. I love Australia and I embrace it. And when people say to me, William, why do you complain about this if you're in Australia? If you don't like it, go home. I am home. And everything I do regarding Australia comes from a place of love. So if I go to a protest, it's from a place of love. Not because I hate this country, but I want the country I love to be even better, the best that it can be. 
And I've also done a lot of these protests and rallies, not because I'm against the country and everything that it laid its foundations on, well, except maybe how they um, mm. invaded the country without the permission of the actual inhabitants of that land. But of course, that can be that that's that is for a whole other conversation. And it would mm. be better it's- to talk to someone who is of Indigenous or First Nations ancestry. Last year, I became an Australian citizen. I and, uh, that's going to be my next question to you. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to <laughs> step on your toes. Yeah, but, yep. So uh, ask, ask him a question. Go on. So, yes. So you came to Australia after, after you turned 18 and you studied here. You found somewhere to live and you created this whole life for yourself. And then a, a little while ago, you decided to complete your transition into becoming a part of this country by becoming a citizen. Can you be able to tell me how that process went? It was a long process. So originally, I came on a working holiday to Australia. I'd been here as a backpacker before a few times. But in 2006, I came on a working holiday. I then became an international student. In 2009, I almost got deported, which was horrible. I was held at the airport. I had 10 minutes to fill in a form saying intention to cancel your visa. And I had to explain. I had 10 minutes, basically, to think of a reason why they could let me stay. They did let me stay. I went to University of Technology. Sydney did my master's in 2011 my student visa once I did the course finished so me and my partner we had to leave we had to pack everything up go back to London London's an amazing place I hope one day you can visit it's in so much history in the UK and Europe but we never felt settled we hadn't been ready for Australia so in 2012 2013 we applied to come back to Australia we had to do all the paperwork there's a long process we had to get an immigration lawyer finally we got permanent residency and I'm very grateful to have got it thank you for the New South Wales government at the time for sponsoring us very grateful and we came here permanent residence and in 2014 last year I became a citizen it was a long process it was 16 months I understand the average weight has gone up now for me it was so important to become a citizen Australia's where I consider home I consider myself Australian I love this country it's where I want to spend the rest of my life of course you, you never know where you'll end up but at this point I want to spend the rest of my life here I love Australia. I'm passionate about Sydney. I want to be able to vote. I want to be able to have more say. And I want to be able to travel. And to me, it means the world. Travel on an Australian passport. And I did. We did, my partner and I, in New Zealand. Well, in December, we went to New Zealand for the first time using Australian passports. And it was just so wonderful. Cool. Back and to Australia <laughs> and going through the Australian queue. So you no longer have to worry about laggering behind with all the other international tourists and visa holders. You can just like go into where everyone else likes to line up if they want to travel. It's fantastic. But you know, it's been my dream not only to live in Australia, but also to be Australian. And I've achieved those dreams. Dreams can come true. They don't always come true, but they can come true. So... It feels almost for a time before COVID that there was going to be this emptiness. It was like, what more do I want in life? What do I want to achieve? So I'm trying to make new dreams and new goals. And when you did pass your citizenship test and you actually got approval, you 
passed through all the requirements for you to register as a legal Australian citizen, you were able to go to a formal ceremony for you to receive yes. your um, certificate or your official documentation. How was that for you and your partner? It was amazing for two, for a couple of reasons. One, I was spending the day and having the ceremony with my partner. We became citizens at that same ceremony. He's Irish, I'm British, we're now both Australian. My mother flew out from London. To have her here was amazing. I had a couple of friends, one who took loads of brilliant photos, but also to be up on stage, not only with our Lord Mayor Clovermore, who's a very popular mayor here in Sydney, but also mm -hmm. Alex He's not my state MP, but he is the state MP for the neighbouring electorate of Sydney, who's also an open man and an activist who was involved in marriage equality. And to have him on stage also give me my certificate. And we were the only people, there were about 200 and something people at the ceremony, we were the only people who got a hug and a kiss from Alex. And on stage as well, there was the rainbow flag. So it meant the world to us. And it's an event I'll never forget. And do you know the first thing I did? after I got my certificate. What did you do? Well, you know what I did? There was a desk where you could register to vote. The first thing I did as soon as I got my certificate was I registered to vote. Wow. To make Living in this country, particularly during, you remember everyone does, the marriage equality survey, the postal survey. I started in that in that I went out door knocking. I did text messages, I phoned people, I volunteered in a marriage equality shop. The one thing me and my partner could not do was tick that yes box or send in that letter, that piece of paper saying we supported same-sex marriage, we supported marriage equality, although actually asked more about same-sex marriage. We couldn't do that. And it was so frustrating because people like us, even though we're not great fans of marriage ourselves or the institution, we were the ones who would be affected by it and we couldn't have a say. So to be able to do that and take part in democracy, if you've always understood democracy and been a part of it, great. But to be able to finally vote in Australia and take part in these things feels like being 18 all over again. It's amazing. Yes. And I really loved my time being a part of that movement, going to rallies, signing, putting my signature onto petitions, going to workshops, meeting some of the, the pinnacle powerhouse and prominent LGBTQIA plus, the activists and advocates, again, to hear their stories and their experiences and that helping me to be invigorated and to be allowing me to become more integral to wanting to do my bit and to contribute in some way mm. to being not only a voice but also be a, um, a representative for the LGBTIQA plus community here in Australia but from the perspective of having a disability. Absolutely. And I, did, and I really am grateful for everything that everyone has done and that accumulated to unfortunately having to do a plebiscite but it overwhelmingly went our way and in January 2018 same-sex marriage was finally legalized in Australia. Where were you on that day? So I remember better where I was when the results of the plebiscite came out. Well I say plebiscite it was really just a postal survey, a cheap 
TV Week style postal survey. I was in Prince Albert Park, sorry, Prince Alfred Park here in Sydney, not far from where I live. There was a big stage. We had people like Lord Mayor Cloven Moore, we had people like Karen Feltz, we had people like Alex Greenwich, other marriage equality activists all on the stage. And I was right at the front facing the stage. I had my camera out filming it, and the result came out. Personally, me, it was a bit underwhelming. For a lot of people in the crowd, it's very overwhelming. They were cheering, they were crying. I actually never doubted the result. I actually predicted, without blowing my own trumpet here, it would be between 60% and 62%. And I was pretty much on the mark. So yes, I never... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I never doubted it. But I was so happy for many of my friends, etc. Now, where I did feel slightly troubled was when it went through Parliament. And yes, it passed Parliament. And that night, I was going out to a party on Oxford Street to celebrate. It was at the Stonewall Hotel. I went to the steps of the Stonewall Hotel, and I turned back. I couldn't do it, because I actually felt at that moment sad and angry that we'd been put through this. It's something the politicians should have done and voted on way before. And I what am I celebrating? So many people have been upset. So many people have been mentally wounded because of this postal survey. We had been thrown under a bus. All we wanted to do was marry. Yeah. I mean, that's what we wanted to do. It doesn't really affect the lives of people who don't want to get married. We want, I mean, personally, I've no desire to marry. I'd like the right and the choice to marry. Yeah, and that's what asking for to be equal under the law. And I just couldn't celebrate. I was so happy for my friends. I don't want to sound selfish. I was over the moon and delighted for my friends who'd planned to get married or wanted to get married or have their marriage in some ways legitimized. Over the moon for them. But I didn't feel like celebrating at that point. I felt sad and I just left. Never yeah, I do that agree moment. with you to mm. my degree. Like, it was mm. great that we got the result that we wanted, but I just wish that we got to that stage years earlier. Like, I actually wanted not really the coalition government, I wanted the Labour government to be the ones who helped to bring in the legislation to make mm. marriage equality or same-sex marriage a, a bona fide reality for LGBTIQ Australia or LGBTIQ A plus Australians, but especially for those who were same-sex attracted, who never got the chance to be able to, to officiate or to, or, or, or even to ratify their marital status. Even if they I went about wanting mm. to have, even when they went overseas to get married, they couldn't be legally recognized as a married couple back here. I have a dear friend, you will have probably heard of him, a Mardi Gras 78 called Peter Duval. He was with his partner, Peter Bonsall Boone, who he knew as Bond for 50 years. Their dream was to marry here in Australia on Australian soil. They campaigned endlessly, even though Bond himself was very ill and dying. I remember a few months before Bond died, they were at a marriage equality rally by Sydney Town Hall, and they both gave a speech. Sadly, Bond died several months before we had same-sex marriage. And I feel so sad that they were so close to achieving that dream. And they're not the only couple where one of them were not able to see the day that they could marry. But that makes me angry. It makes me sad. And I find it very hard to 
move forward from that and to forgive. I know we have to find ways to move forward, to reconcile, but it doesn't mean we have to forget. It doesn't even mean we have to forgive, but it means that we have to appreciate and never forget what we have now because we've worked all the rights we have. We've fought to get, we've had to earn and get the wrong kind of government as we're seeing with the religious freedom bill, get the wrong kind of government or the wrong kind of policies. Those rights we've achieved could always be taken back and we have to guard those rights preciously. Yeah. Never take them for granted. And that actually comes to one of, the, one of my last two questions. This, one of them is to wrap up this discussion. Where do you see Australia's LGBTIQ plus community in the next few decades? If we remain cautious, if we remain passionate, if we keep up the struggle, I see a positive outcome. I see a positive outlook. I think it's very much... Well, first, I'd like to thank the previous generations and current generations, and particularly our queer LGBTIQ elders for struggling, for campaigning, fighting for many of the rights we enjoy. We must never forget that. The rights we have now have been achieved by many who've come before, and still people of my generation and future generations will hopefully gain and campaign for more rights. I see it positive, but I'm also aware but in countries such as Russia, in other countries, we're seeing Poland with the Polish election, those rights can always be put back. You know, they can regress. But I think in Australia, it's our younger generation, as well as the older generation, working together and moving forward. I am positive, I'm optimistic, but it will only come about if we don't take what we have for granted and we are always aware and cautious and watching carefully what's going on about us and scrutinizing everything yes i can definitely wanting to still it's some significant capacity i want to be able to take part in wanting to safeguard and to preserve the rights and the legal teas that we do have mm -hmm. and i would hate for it for any of those rights and policies and laws to be pushed back or be watered down because it will negate or even be quite a, a travesty for us after mm. all the sacrifices after all the pain that we went through we have to face another battle with political authorities and with other institutions in society mm. to make sure that we are seen still seen and still valid as first-class citizens I would also add to that and say, I'm a gay man. I'm an able-bodied gay man. We also need to look at ourselves. The uh, misogyny, the sexism, the racism, uh, the ableism within our community, uh, the, the transphobia, biphobia, these are all issues we have to look at as well. And we have to take a lead. We have to put a mirror up in front of us because our own community is far from perfect too. Often we're divided. There's often a lot of prejudice. So when I talk about the wider world uh, giving us equal rights and, you know, welcoming and embracing us, we need to embrace ourselves too. It's crucial. And my final question to you, William, what tips or advice can you give to those who are wanting to do their bit but are still trying to survive this pandemic 
how can they be able to get through this without having to be the one who prevents the outbreak, but the one who wants to be a renegade or the dissenter of preventing the spread of this virus? I would say follow medical information from recognised medical organisations, follow the government's lead, what they're saying, maybe your state government, your federal government. Try not to buy into fear, try not to buy into hysteria, close off from a lot of those Facebook things. If you see somebody posting something from some strange alternative website, if you don't feel up to reading it, don't read it. Take a step back, turn the TV off, get away from social media, read a book, think, put some music on, watch a movie, watch a documentary, but don't let it ruin your life. Don't let COVID win. Don't let COVID fear or hysteria be the victor. You be the winner because you are all winners at life and you can all be that. You can all be winners. And that includes everyone who has has to stay at home or to self-isolate or to keep themselves in quarantine. Absolutely. And there is hope. If you get COVID, my best friend, he lives in Toronto in Canada, he has COVID. We had COVID. He's recovered. I don't know what the long-term effects will be, but he's obviously been cautious, but he's back out and about. I had some family in London that got sick too with COVID. You know, people, there is hope at the end of it, you know? We can get through it. Not for everybody, of course. Some, we've had many deaths and we still don't know the long-term effects. But please, please do not be scared. Please do not panic. Live your life within the regulations. Use your common sense. But don't be scared. Fear is one of the worst things to have. And it will just make any anxiety even worse. Well, thank you so much for joining me here on What's the Quarantine? Thank you so, so much, mate. Jared, it, I really appreciate it. And I want to thank you for recently being on my own show at home and on InView TV, which goes out every Wednesday at 7 p.m. I hope you'll be on it again. And it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to speak to you. And also I want to thank you for your own activism in the world of disability, but also in the sphere of LGBTIQ. Thank you. We need people such as yourself. We need people to be leaders, role models, and you were easily both of those. Thank you. Well, um, I, I think I'm definitely a long way from being a role model, but yeah, um, it's good that I'm able to contribute in some aspect or within a capacity where I feel like that I am in a way helping to drive or to direct people to wanting to listen and to understand and to be educated about how it is to be a person who identifies as being both LGBTIQIA+, and also having a disability. You know why you're a role model? Because you're also a teacher. So I identify as able-bodied. Yes, I have conditions such as asthma, etc. But you're an educator. From people such as yourself and your good friend Thomas Banks, I learn about the world of disability. I learn about things that I take for granted that others don't. Within the particularly the gay community, gay men, you know, there's a big thing about body image, etc. perfection. We need to learn that there's no such thing as perfection. We're all beautiful in our own way. And we need people such as yourself and Thomas Banks to be out there on the front line and educate people like me. And we need to listen. I need to listen. Yeah, we, yeah. We've got to learn from people such as yourself. 
Yep, well, it's all about knowing if they want to be able to pay attention to us. But as I say, it's a it's a continuous, ever changing, ever evolving process. So I guess yes. I just need to see if someone is going to pay, or is, if someone wanted to have a conversation with me for a few minutes and to let me say my piece, and and if they take anything from it, if they be able to have a much more wider, much more broader perspective and opinion about how it is to be a person who not only has to has to handle issues and barriers of being in the LGBTIQA plus community, but also having to handle ableist language and attitudes. So it's a continuous process. It's quite strenuous and it can be something that can take a lot out of you, but it's all about having the right level and the right amount of persistence and patience and concentration. That's so true, Jared. Well, William, thank you so much again for coming on my podcast. And I hope to see you again in person once this whole carnage is over. I really hope so. Thank you, Jared, for your valuable time. Keep being an amazing person. Keep being you. And we love you for it. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) You know me so well, William. And thanks again for joining me and for sitting down, well, virtually. And just giving, just letting yourself to unload everything that's been going on with you from your childhood right through to being another person who's going to be co-signed into the history books once we get through to the other side of this pandemic. Trust me, the LGBTIQ plus, or the, no, the LGBTQIA plus historians in the next few decades are really wanting to hear everyone's account or their testimonies of how they got through the early days and going through the many ins and outs of the of outbreaks and clusters and when we and get into the eventual conclusion where we finally get unchained or we have the shackles get untied to our way of life. People are wanting to know how we adapted, how we managed to get through it all. And maybe even my podcast may be a good reference for that. You never know. You, I would be astounded if someone is, is studying these podcast episodes as a historical artifact to know how it is that people got through the, I think I could say the second deadliest global pandemic in human history. Well, okay. If you want to hear more about William and his life and how he's become the man that he is, just go onto his social media accounts. He is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just give him a like or a follow, and he will definitely want to hear about your own stories, about how you have been getting through all of this because this is what what the quarantine is about sharing and exchanging stories and experiences opinions and perspectives all to do with the 
2020 novel coronavirus pandemic. Well, that's it for me. I will hopefully join you all again soon. All right. Bye-bye.